Let's take your average weekly grocery shop. Maybe like me, you've got kids and you know what it's like trawling the supermarket aisles looking for deals as the cost of living keeps going up. Earlier this year, an IOL article documented a comparative study on how much a basic basket of groceries costs. Nothing fancy, just the regulars like bread, maize meal, milk, soap, toilet paper, that kind of thing. The cheapest basket costs 394 rand. According to a World Bank report released in 2020, over 30 million South Africans live on 992 rand a month per person. A joint press release from May 2023 by a number of organizations invested in youth well-being states that two-thirds of children in South Africa live below the upper poverty line. You do the math on that one. This reality is not just felt in the stomachs of families around the country, but if we look through a system's lens, we can see how poverty impacts communities on numerous levels. The link between poverty and socioeconomic challenges such as lowered physical and mental health, poor education, gangsterism, and substance abuse has been well documented. Welcome. I am Tombini Marangani, host of Season 3 of the Just For A Change podcast. If you've been following this series, you'll know that I have conversations with changemakers from South Africa and further afield. In this episode, we're going to be hearing more about an innovative program that makes psychosocial support more accessible to the young people who need it most. So what is psychosocial support? According to the Reference Center for Psychosocial Support, it refers to, quote, the process of facilitating and strengthening resilience within individuals, families, and communities to recover from and adapt to critical adversities with potentially damaging long-term impacts, unquote. And we'll hear more about this shortly. But just a note before we dive into this conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Please pop us an email with your stories of change-making work, or if there's someone you'd like to suggest as a guest, let us know. You can email us at birthacenter.gsb at uct.ac.za. Today, I'm joined by a change maker who is investing in creating waves of change for young people. Ashley Heese is a current Bertha Scholar and is completing her MPhil in Inclusive Innovation through the UCT Graduate School of Business. Ashley is the Partnerships and Innovation Manager at Waves for Change, an international organization that provides child-friendly mental health services to children and young people in under-resourced communities. Let's dive right into that conversation now. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's a real privilege to have you share your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what shaped you and how you found yourself working in this field. I think it's quite an ongoing collection of things, and I think I'm constantly still being shaped, to be honest. I haven't found my final form yet, but... One of the big factors is I come from a family of educators, a family of actually predominantly um, kind of on the maternal sides, the grandmothers and the great-grandmothers who see education as a form of social liberation. And I've just managed to kind of combine my passion for mental health with that kind of family legacy of, of using education as a, a way to bring about social change. 
What does a day look like for you as the Partnership and Innovations Manager at the Waves for Change? Sometimes there's quite a lot of fires to put out, but I think another way of looking at it is there's just lots of windows of opportunity to jump through. I'm lucky to work in quite an innovative, responsive organization. So there's always something new, always something fresh, which is really cool. It usually involves either running a training or supporting someone else to run a training or planning a training. We're doing lots and lots of training work at the moment. It often involves about a minimum of 100 bad ideas to find one good idea. I really love what you said about education being a tool for social liberation. Could you speak more about that and how it manifests itself in your work? Mm, so I think kind of speaking to the, the family history to start, it's my mom, um, she worked a lot in communities like Kailicha and Guguletu and Langa and Ocean View as a teacher from kind of a very young age. And for her, it was very tied to activism, working with youth. My great-grandparents started Livingston High School, and that was in response to the kind of oppressive education system at the time. And they saw education as liberation was kind of their motto. While I'm not necessarily working in a, quite such a political space, although I guess in some ways mental health is quite political, but I see the role of Ways for Change, a lot of what we're focusing on is training and supporting youth from communities to provide mental health services to children and adolescents in their communities. And so our role as a kind of a support system to them involves training, education that then kind of builds on their existing knowledge, their existing social capital, their existing passion and hopefully just increases their autonomy and their agency to to deliver services themselves. That's really that's really amazing that they're still living testimony to your grandparents' passion. I actually lived around the corner from Livingston High School. Oh, really? Um, that's, yeah, I can attest uh, that the legacy continues. Mm. Can you share more with us about Waves for Change and your approach to offering the psychosocial support services that your organization does? Yeah, of course. Um, so Ways for Change uses a combination of access to caring adults, which are usually youth from the same communities as our participants. And we train and support those youth to provide safe spaces for children and adolescents. And part of that safe space is sport. So we use the sport of surfing and there's a lot of therapeutic outcomes that come from sports like surfing. Um, or group physical activity. And so we use that kind of very powerful combination of these caring adults, these mentors, who have a foundational understanding of well-being and mental health. They have tools and skills that equip them to create these safe spaces and, and to respond to some of the well-being needs of the youth that they serve. And then we just have a lot of fun at the beach and the kids have an opportunity to experience mastery, to experience respite, to experience connection, all of which are, are really essential to their health and well-being. What role does belonging and connection play in offering effective psychosocial support to children and young people who access your program? In our program, we have, we've kind of identified these five, what we call our, our key pillars, the, the, the core ingredients of our program. But the biggest 
driver of impact and change when it comes to youth development and, and youth well-being is connection, social connection. So, you know, when we feel that we belong, we feel safe, which allows our systems to settle, which then allows us to be more open to learning, to sharing our feelings, to exploring uh, potential futures and feelings of hope. It, it just allows for a lot more. Um, and so that sense of belonging is is really, really key to safe spaces. It's also really key to our self-concept, how we think about ourselves and how we view ourselves and our self-esteem, how we value ourselves. And then connection to a caring adult is, is one of the, the biggest protective factors in a youth's life. So if they're experiencing a lot of adversity or stress, access to a caring adult is really, really one of the things that will reduce the negative impacts of, of that adversity and that stress. And our coaches um, connect to the youth and they, they provide a, a really important co-regulation role. So by both kind of modeling the behaviors and, and the skills and the tools as a way of teaching the participants, but also by creating that safe space where the participants can then learn to self-regulate themselves. That's really important. I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, over what type of time span do these relationships between the coaches and the participants develop and the skills building? Yeah, that's a great question. Our participants are in our program for a year and they attend um, once a week. So once a week we'll um, provide transport from the school, we bring them to the beach where they can access their coach and their peers and the fun of surfing and we also have a psychosocial curriculum that's full of kind of activities that, that teach self-regulation and connection and, and, and uh, various kind of tools for well-being. We found through, we do a lot of different research and monitoring at our program, it's, it's um, at Ways for Change, and we found through a recent study, which was a heart rate variability study, that it takes about eight weeks for the participant systems to settle. So it's taking around eight weeks, so about two months, for them to feel comfortable in the space, to feel relaxed. And so really a lot of the magic starts to happen after that. Those first eight weeks are, are really, well, they're pretty magical themselves, but they're really about creating safe spaces and strong connections. And after roughly eight weeks, we're starting to see, okay, that's when the participants really trust their coaches, their peers, themselves in the space. And then we can start to introduce some of those uh, slightly deeper skills like mindfulness or thinking about one's strengths or setting goals for the future. And that continues for the rest of the year. I think that's really powerful because when we think about um, efforts to facilitate social change, a lot of times the emphasis is just counting numbers and not really looking at processes. And what you've explained is that the process is actually foundational in order for the youth or the young person participating in the program to start to reap the benefits of actually being in the longer relationship with their coach and their peers. Why do you think innovative approaches to mental health support are important, specifically in the South African context? There just is such a huge treatment gap in the South African context. There's um, high need and very few services to meet that need. So for example, 
in Kailicha, one of the communities where we work in Cape Town, there's a 92% treatment gap. So 92% of people who need access to mental health services aren't getting them. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, but there's just, there is no one service, uh, conventional or not conventional, innovative or not innovative, that can meet that need currently. And so we really, really need, in order to increase access to mental health services, we're going to have to broaden the type of services available. I also think that, you know, mental health is a spectrum that we're all constantly moving along. And there isn't one type of prevention or promotion or intervention or treatment that's going to meet everyone's needs, right? And I think especially when we're talking about youth, conventional approaches aren't always necessarily youth-friendly, right? And so we're not anti the more conventional mental health approaches. We think they're really essential and really, really valuable. So I'm talking psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. That work is so needed. It just can't do it alone, right? We're, it's overburdened. And so we have to come up with um, a whole variety of other ways to respond to the needs of our communities and, and yeah, South African people. When we think about mental health at, at Ways for Change, we're trying also to not think about, I mean, this is obviously where there's a high need and so a lot of energy does get focused here, but we try not to only think about the kind of pathologized approach to mental health, which really focuses on the kind of illness end of the spectrum. Um, we're trying to also think about well-being, like true well-being, which is about so much more than not just being sick, right? It's about uh, supporting youth to be able to reach their full potential, to support community cohesion, um, healthy relationships, all of these things. And that also needs to be innovative, right? So if we're looking at a broader understanding of what is mental health and well-being and it's not just illness it's it's kind of true well-being and that's really exciting because there's so many innovative opportunities and ways to support youth well-being and really easy ways to support youth well-being actually there's some quite simple things we can do and so that's also really exciting as well I think what you've mentioned is really important because we do kind of get distracted and focused on sort of crisis intervention instead of health promotion and well-being promotion, um, even in, in society in general. Um, so making that very relatively small investment in promotion of well-being and habits and attitudes, we don't focus enough on promotion of well-being. It's all about managing crisis. And that's really encouraging to hear that Waves for Change sees the opportunity, um, the untapped opportunity, I would argue, in, in helping the next generation. In, in the course of our talking, you've already mentioned two barriers um, to young people accessing the support they, they need. You've mentioned a limited number of service providers, and you've also mentioned this focus on sort of the crisis end of the conversation. What are some of the other barriers for young people in accessing the psychosocial support that they need? Stigma is a really big one. I do think it's shifting, which is exciting, especially in the younger generations. But there is still some stigma around mental health. 
you know, which kind of relates to what I was, I was saying about often conversations about mental health lean towards conversations around mental illness and there's a lot of stigma and taboo around that. Cost, <laughs> it's very, very cost prohibitive to, to access mental health services or the free services are often quite overburdened, right? Um, and again, there's not that many of them, so perhaps you have to travel far, which is again expensive. And then I think, and I, uh, I don't really know what the word is for this one, I don't know if it's um, appropriateness or relevance or um, desirability, but there's a lot about kind of conventional mental health services that even if they have the potential to be really beneficial, aren't very attractive to youth <laughs> and potentially don't feel like something that they want to do or they feel very far removed from their lives. It can feel quite unnatural for some people to go and talk to a stranger about your feelings or your deep and personal experiences. Conventional services aren't always super um, appropriate or relevant, even if they are accessible. I think that speaks a lot to the different way that young people see challenges and see their future in our rapidly changing world. It makes a lot of sense to me that they're not as keen on perhaps traditional talk therapy treatments, talking to a stranger, as you've said, when the world around them is so dynamic and it makes sense that actually the ways that we access these services and the ways that we support young people also need to become dynamic in order to meet them where they are. Just a quick note from my daughter, who you may remember from episode one of season three. A reminder to all our listeners that the Bertha Centre Youth Portfolio Team has some excellent youth mental health resources, including a list of affordable and free counselling services We've linked that in the show notes of this episode. Now we're living in an age where young people socialize by themselves yeah. on a device. Um, and the people that they're connecting with over shared interests don't necessarily reside in the same physical location. So then it's a completely digital relationship. And that is yeah. uncharted territory what it means in the long run. And of course, COVID has also had its impact on the ways we think about getting together. Um, it's just not the yeah. same anymore. How has adopting a systems lens impacted the way you see the work of organizations like Waves for Change? Yeah, a lot. Uh, in ways I'm still trying to figure out, to be honest. I, I haven't um, you know, quite come up the other side of it. But I think one of the, the things that I appreciate, which might sound a little bit strange is I've really appreciated kind of recognizing that it doesn't matter how strong or not strong our program is it doesn't act in isolation and it can't do everything and I quite appreciate the opportunities that come with seeing the limits of our work and then exploring what else is out there so that's been one of the the big impacts and then another way is we have uh, we do quite a lot of partnerships work so we made the decision a while ago, we're not trying to grow Waves for Change, but we do feel really excited by the service. We feel really motivated that more people, more youth should have access to mental health services. And so we're trying to do 
a kind of scale through partnerships approach. And that's required a bit of a systems lens as well. And so that's been really exciting. I think that's, that's really amazing. Since joining the MPhil, how has that impacted the way you see things? And how were you drawn to the MPhil program at the Bertha Center? I'm very lucky to work for a very innovative organization. I really appreciate that. I think what the MPhil is helping me do, although I think intentionally part of the process is kind of to rock our worlds a little bit um, in a good way, but definitely kind of, you know, shake the solid ground that we think we're standing on. Um, but I think it's it's really helped me to structure how I think about innovation um, and how I think about complexity and scale. And it's also just provided on a personal level this this really strong push to to kind of keep learning. Right. And, and um, to find that balance, obviously, we, you know, like I said at the beginning, we don't want to be innovative just for innovation's sake, but to to keep learning and, and to not kind of get to that that stage of the life cycle where you get a little bit conservative and a little bit safe and, and you rest on the things that you've been doing for a long time. And what are some of the targeted ways in which Waves for Change has applied the learning um, from its past experiences and, and turned those into innovations. Yeah, we're, we're really honest about the, the things that we, we get wrong. <laughs> it feels important, um, honest with ourselves and, and anyone else who will ask, really. We, we value learning a lot. I think some of the ways that we have always been and continue to be innovative, um, one of the things we're really strong on is evaluation and research. We're trying lots of different ways to work with um, different types of organizations. We've worked, we've got partners, I think, in about 14 different countries at the moment. We're working with lots of different types of organizations. So we're, 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 we're really open, I think, is the word that comes to mind. We're really open. We want to collaborate. We want to share. You know, we believe rising tide lifts all boats. Can you share with us any stories of impact that you've seen coming out of your work recently? In general, some of the most exciting impact for me personally over the past couple of years has been really seeing our partners integrate this kind of co-created knowledge and skill set and model, um, integrating it into their own work and then running with it. And so that's been really incredible. I think shifting mindsets um, has been really incredible you know often we when we start a partnership or when we start with our own team internally with our coaches the initial conversations around mental health are they're not wrong they're just perhaps narrow um and conventional and to kind of see that that shift in how we're approaching mental health and understanding mental health um i find that really exciting if you say the word mental health service to someone, I think there's quite a particular image that comes to mind, potentially. You know, it's quite clinical. Maybe there's a white coat. I don't know. A lot of the spaces that I get to be in, which are incredibly evidence-based, impactful, professional, high-quality mental health services, there's play. There's singing you know we had one of our our, our meetups recently with our kailicha network which is 23 organization our cape town network sorry it's 23 organizations working together for a year 
to develop uh, to provide mental health services. And we had one of our we have a monthly meetup, which is just a space to connect and learn and, and share ideas and challenges and things like that. And you know, if you say mental health training, what comes to mind might not be what happened. And and we were sitting in this room, and I would say of the three hours that we were together, probably at least an hour was spent just song and dance, just cultural songs, just the most amazing energy in the room. And then everyone in that room could say, this is about belonging. And belonging is essential for mental health, and it has these mental health outcomes, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it was also play and song and connection, and it was so human. And so that combination for me just feels... uh, so so thrilling um that it it can be a space that looks like that and is evidence-based high quality services um you know that's really really exciting it is exciting and these kind of rich experiences which don't fit a template of mental health services are really important for helping to shift the conversation on how we think about supporting youth and empowering youth. Um, You've given some great examples of impact, and I just wondered if there were any challenges in this work that you would like to share with us. There's always the day-to-day realities of the nonprofit sector. I think you know, we're, we're working with wicked problems, complex problems, and so there's a lot of challenges that come with that. I think an interesting one at the moment, well, not just at the moment, always is kind of this, um, I'm using inverted commas, but the, the burden of proof, right? If you're going to be innovative, you get challenged a lot to, well, not even challenged, just asked to kind of provide evidence or proof that what you're doing is working. And that's good. That's right. We should. <laughs> um, I'm not saying, you know, just give us money for free or, or refer us your participants for free, of course. But it's, a, it's an interesting challenge to capture, right? So that, that visual that I just described about 60 people in a room and it's song and dance, and then somehow putting that in a report to funders and saying, this is an evidence-based mental health service. It's, it, it's an interesting challenge. To, to have it's a challenge I'm very grateful that we have because you know it it means that there's something working we just need to be able to to capture it and and tell that story yeah storytelling is critical um in this work in the work of social impact resilience is a big theme that often comes up when talking about psychosocial support what do you think about that and how do you see developing resilience as a key component of this work in the early days of the program, there was sometimes language around uh, kind of teaching resilience, not necessarily from Waves for Change, but in the space. And we were always quite uncomfortable with that because we always felt like our participants were, you know, the most resilient people we know. The amount of adversity that they're experiencing, um, the level of challenges that they're dealing with, um, and yet are still showing up every day um you know they were teaching us about resilience if anything i do think though that we can't deny that there's a huge impact on 
our participants when they are experiencing so much adversity. You know, if you're existing in this very challenging world, it has a huge impact on your thoughts and your feelings and your behavior. There's buildup of toxic stress, which impacts your cognitive functioning. It's increased risk of non-communicable disease. You know, it, it, it goes on and on. And so what we do need to do is, is support our participants to, to kind of build that strong internal world that provides some tools to, to deal with that adversity in a healthy way. And we do need to provide them with opportunities where their systems can settle and regulate and they have access to people who they can talk to and things like that. Um, and that's very, very essential for their health. And so that I guess that kind of contributes towards resilience. It contributes towards health, but our participants already are very resilient. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic. Well, I think it also has to do with how one defines resilience, right? Because it's not just pull up your socks and get on with it. It's the things that you that you mentioned. It's about um, being able to ground oneself um, and have internal resources, um, which you tap into, not just sort of the outward displays of resilience, you know, keep going and so on, but really finding the internal mental strength to, even if one cannot overcome an immediate challenge, to find a way to not let it um, overwhelm a person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but I loved what you said about, um, you know, maybe shifting what resilience looks like. And so, you know, perhaps for our participants, Yes, they are already very resilient, but maybe after some time in the program, for them, an extra part of resilience is being able to ask for help when they need it, which maybe they didn't do before or something like that. Or feel that they have a safe space to go and decompress, even if nothing actually changes in the immediate surroundings, just to have that soft spot. Yeah. It was really interesting. We... We do quite a lot of self-report data with our participants and we've shifted over the years what kinds of tools we do. But there used to be one where they would kind of describe emotions at the baseline, at the beginning of the program, and then again later. And we'd sometimes get a lot of participants and they were kind of listing more about sadness and anger and loneliness or things like that after being in the program for quite a while. And we, we kind of had this initial panic of, oh my God, we're... We're making all our children really sad and angry. It really was when we kind of explored deeper was that they developed language for a variety of emotions and they felt a little bit more comfortable expressing those emotions, which for us is actually a huge, you know, obviously that's quite a big win for resilience and for psychosocial support. Um, and so again, it's it's just interesting when we think about how are we measuring these things and and how do we define something like resilience? Um, maybe being able to say, wow, today I feel a bit sad and I need some help. No, that is massive. That is massive. Especially when a young person has not necessarily had um, models for this kind of um for this kind of self-awareness and being able to verbalize and 
then think constructively about those feelings. Um, it's massive. It's massive because you can be angry and that anger can turn to rage, right? Mm. Yeah. But if you can, if you have the wherewithal to really dig and examine and understand perhaps it's sadness under that, you've, you've actually taken a massive step. Exactly. And also one of the key steps in self-regulation is self-awareness, right? So in order for anyone, I'm not even going to pick on children, <laughs> for any human being to, you know, manage their emotions, they have to be able to name them. And we don't always have the space at our program to go very deep. And it's not always very appropriate when a child, you know, shares a feeling to ask them to open up about why necessarily. But if they can name that feeling for themselves and then eventually get to the point where they feel comfortable sharing it with someone else, then together we can come up with healthy ways to respond to that emotion. But that that first step of being able to kind of self-monitor and, and, and check in with oneself is, is so essential. And I think that's part of what's so amazing about your work is that you're actually seeding change in the generation to come. What's your dream or vision for the future? How would you like to see this work grow and develop? It's going to sound quite simple, and I, I, I guess I could give a, a more complex answer, but the, the kind of simple answer is I just more youth-led safe spaces and communities, and that could look like a bunch of young men who once a week go for a walk around the block <laughs> together and just check in and say, hey, how's your week been? You know, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be formal or structured necessarily, although those are also great. You know, I think we all know that feeling. You can be feeling really bad and then bump into someone friendly in the street and they say, hey, how are you doing? I've missed you. And, you know, it turns the day around. It's a, it's a small sentence in comparison to perhaps whatever you're dealing with, but it can make all the difference. And so I guess my... My hope, which is not super complex or grand, um, but would be that, you know, more of us are kind of acting on that awareness of how those small things can make a difference. And, you know, like I said, even if it's just intentionally getting together with five people from your community and checking in on each other, then, yeah, that would be really cool. You define it quite simply, but it's actually quite a profound idea. We We are in a way, using these methods and tools as a way to come back to our humanity, you know, teaching young people that they matter, teaching them that their feelings are valid, teaching them that they are important and others care about their well-being. I mean, those are some pretty profound lessons, although we might say it's just saying, hey, I've missed you. Um, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's a lot in there. Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing your story with us. We so appreciate it. Of course. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for the opportunity. It was really wonderful. In wrapping up this episode, we'd like to play a clip of one of the young men impacted by the Waves for Change program. I think this really does say it all. When I was 14, the founder of Waves for Change came to my school. They were looking for children who have been exposed or were suffering with trauma and wanted to find a way to heal them. 
Ways for Change is a non-profit organization that uses surfing as a tool to educate children, to equip them with good decision-making, coping skills, giving them a safe space, and also giving them better opportunities. I was one of the first one from my community to pick up a surfboard and become a mentor. My name is Lukolo. Luke Spongo, I was born in 1997. Crime, gangsterism, violence, you grow up being exposed on it here in Kailicha. Children would fight, like from my community and the community next to it, like they would fight with sharp blades, pangas, and knives. The war wasn't optional, like you weren't asked do you want to join or not. To protect myself, I joined the gang. When you're in gang, you feel protected. You feel untouchable. Ways for Change said to me, the project wasn't about them. It was about making me a mentor, a role model, for me to then take my own breakthrough back to my community. Say, me being with the kids in the ocean is the best thing. They remind me when I was their age. Most of them, you can see that the ocean is the only place that, where they feel welcome, where they feel the sense of belonging or where they have hope. Thank you for tuning in to Season 3 of the Just for Change podcast, powered by the Birthday Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're interested in hearing more conversations with changemakers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts and feel free to share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.